Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Charles Bush, who is a playwright and an actor. His play, Red Scare on Sunset, is being performed at New Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, September 21st through October 21st. It's a San Francisco premiere, and for more information, you can go to nctcsf.org. Charles Bush has been a very successful playwright. Among his plays, Psycho Beach Party, Die, Mommy, Die, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, which was nominated for a Tony. More recently, we have The Confessions of Lily Dare, I guess in April, was in New York. Yeah, we did kind of a little, I hate calling it even a tryout because it was supposed to be just 24 performances just to kind of get out of my system, but it turned out better than I anticipated. And we're going to do a full production in December of 2019, if I live long enough. And that will be off-Broadway, on-Broadway? Off-Broadway. It's one of our good nonprofit theaters out here, Primary Stages. Now, I also heard, before we go into um, talking about Red Scare on Sunset in your career, that Tale of the Allergist Wife is becoming a movie with Bette Midler and Sharon Stone. Is that correct? That's what I read, but I, <laughs> I, I, won't, uh, I won't bill them for the money until uh, I hear the cameras are cranking. This has been a, a project that's been in the works for over 15 years, and, and these ladies are attached to it, and the director, Andy Fickman, and... I just, you know, I'm not totally in the loop, actually, as the writer never is. So I don't know, you know. Yeah, I wrote the screenplay. It's based on my play. So we'll, we'll see. It'd be thrilling if it happened. Movies are complicated. Movies take a very long time. Well, you did direct one film. That was a very serious person, 2006. Yeah. Well, I directed two movies in a certain sense. I directed a short subject film for Showtime. And actually, they're connected because... Years ago, Showtime had a series called Quick Flicks, where they asked people who had never directed a film before, they gave them the budget, one day shooting to do a five-minute film. And so I was asked to do that. And it was really fun and came out well. And it was called Personal Assistant. My dear friend, Daryl Roth, is a wonderful New York Broadway producer and has been just a great friend to me over the years. And I showed her the short subject. And she said, uh, oh, if you ever want to do a feature, I'll produce it. So immediately I left her office and I, I called my friend Carl Andrews, who's been a collaborator of mine, mostly as director. And I said, we got to write a movie right away. And, and, and we have to figure out a budget so low that Daryl has to do it. And so we wrote this screenplay fast. And, and really within months, we were, we were shooting the movie. I don't think that's happened since 1932 at Warner Brothers. <laughs> so, you know, it was a movie. And it's, we uh, were runners up for a big award at the Tribeca Film Festival. It was all very exciting. And it went straight to video and probably should have. I learned a lot. And there are people who really like it, the few who've seen it. And the more important thing was that it was kind of a magical um, month for those of us who made the film. Charles Bush, 
before we go into talking about your career, let's talk a little about Red Scare on Sunset. Uh, now, a lot of your shows, most of your shows, seem to be based on ideas that originated in the pre-code era with the women of the pre-code era. But this, of course, takes place in the 1950s. Yeah. What brought you to write it back when? I believe what happened was I had a theater company called Theater Limbo from 85 to 92. Let's say 84 to 92. And it was an ensemble and uh, which I acted with. And my friend Ken Elliott was the director, producer, and, and we had a company of actors. I wrote all these plays for them. And so we were doing a play called The Lady in Question, which was a, a homage to um, World War II um, anti-Nazi espionage movies. And at one point I was telling my leading man, Arnie Kolodner, I, I said, you know, oh, because his character at one point in this 1940s piece was espousing about you know, Joe Stalin and, and what a great guy he was because there, you know, there was that brief period when we were on their side. And so I said, you know, if we did the sequel to this set in the early 50s, your character would have been blacklisted because of, of that statement. And that got me thinking that about doing a play about the Hollywood blacklist. And I, I didn't think that the, um, oh, just the usual scenario of a poor leftist artist who's hounded out their career was really the stuff of comedy. But I thought it could be interesting to flip it around and do it as, as this extreme right-wing nightmare. And so my character that I played, Mary Dale, is this rather all-American, somewhat innocent movie actress who discovers to her horror that her husband, her movie director, her best friend, and her houseboy are all in this communist plot to destroy the Hollywood star system. And she ends up naming names with a great spirit of, you know, uh, triumph. You have to have a, a real sense of irony to get the play, which not everybody does. And, and there were people at the time when we did it in 1991 who thought I was somehow championing blacklisting. I mean, it was really rather silly when you think about it, but you have to be able to flip things around. I'm glad that, that New Conservatory Theater is is doing this play. It's not done that often. And, and I think today there's something very... Um, interesting uh, about it. it really the play is about extremism and how the most extreme on the right and the most extreme on the left there's actually a place where they meet oddly enough you know both sides have nothing don't want anything to do with homosexuality <laughs> you know and you get the real extremes of different sides that's really what the source of the comedy is i'm giving you a very long long answer here i can just keep rattling on yeah, so what i'm excited about this production in san francisco is that I've done a rewrite, and I think on it a few years ago, that I think is really um, important. And I believe they may be one of the first theaters, if not the first theater to actually do this version. When we played it in 1991, and it got really great reviews, some of the best notices I've ever received, but a number of critics mentioned something about the ending that was a problem. And, and the director and I, uh, we just kept you know thinking, what's the ending? What's... What's the problem? We, and during the whole run, we kept fiddling with different lines or this or that and lighting cues. And then years later, I was preparing an anthology of my plays to be published. And I was looking at Red Scare. 
And I, and I thought, oh, it's not the end. It's the end. <laughs> and the critics, you know, they, they sometimes suggest things without actually telling you what the problem is. And it just it seemed that the protagonist's problems in the play were all tied up about 20 minutes before the end of the play. And I thought that's what the problem is. So I did a rewrite to keep her engaged and make the end of the plot the end of her problem. I think it's vastly improved, and I, I, uh, I'm glad it's being done. Do you know who's playing the, uh, the lead at this point? Wonderful actor, um, uh, Jake Conrad Frank. Mar- marvelous actor and, and has played a number of female roles, played a, number, a couple of my parts. I think he did Die, Mommy, Die out at New Conservatory Theater about a year ago. And he has a drag persona. I can't really pronounce the last name, Katya. There's several Katyas. He seems to be kind of from my um, school of realism. What I try to do in, when I play these roles, I've written for myself these female characters. It's important that they not only you know, be comic and accurate to Hollywood acting styles, but also have genuine sensitivity and you know, you can be campy and still have moments of tenderness, moments of suspense, all sorts of things. And he's he's an actor who can navigate that thorny path. Well, there are a number of actors I've seen in the Bay Area that move in that direction. I mean, okay. it's not just the old drag queen thing from the 70s. It's, it's evolved. Drag is just such a vast concept of performance. It embraces such a spectrum of of styles, you know, from the most extreme to to the most naturalistic. When you have a play that's just out there and being licensed by many different theaters around the world or the country, as a writer, you have no say or, or, or you know, or, or even that much of interest, to, frankly, you know, other than make sure that you get the check in the mail. So, um, so you just don't know. It can be done in a style that's very, very different from what your original intention was. How would you feel if an actual woman were playing those roles? I would think it's great. The best person available should play the part, as far as in my place. If the talent pool was such that a very talented biological actress was the best one and and a man playing the female character wasn't up to her standard, I'd much rather it be done with the biological woman. Could something like Tale of Allergist's Wife be played by a man in drag, or would that be a problem? You know, it's funny. Someone might think I'm kind of a big old hypocrite about it. I had to fight, actually, to do... I did a big revival of Auntie Mame, a tour of that, and had to get permissions from the state lawyers to do it. And yet, I remember being troubled by a production of Allergist's Wife in which they wanted to cast one of the female roles with a, with a guy in drag, because... The Alger's Wife is a very different style play from these movie pastiche parodies of mine. It's a naturalistic play. I thought it sort of implied that everything I write is in the exact same style, and just what wasn't. I'm a little looser now about it. The problem is, is that you just don't know. I could say, yeah, well, you know, if there really was some really brilliant actor who could be so realistic and so, you know, and not in a stylized way, capture it. But I wouldn't know. If I say yes, it just could be some, you know, really outrageous guy that is completely in the wrong style. And you know, these, there are a lot of very creative directors out there. <laughs> very creative. Charles Bush, let's talk a little about your career. 
you went to the high school music and art. At what point did you consider drag? I mean, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, this was in New York, and there was drag in the village at that particular time. Were you coming down and seeing it at all? Yes, yes. I I went to high school music and art as an art major, but that was just because it's the only school that would take me. My interest all my life, earliest memory was theater and wanted to be on stage. Well, I, I get the chronology a little mixed up. But let's just say, <laughs> let's just say, Richard, that when I was in college, like freshman year of college, we could say it that way, I went to Northwestern and I was a theater major and I just was never cast in a play. You know, I was just too gay. Whatever I was, I was too much. I've always had a very pragmatic view of things. You know, I'm not a fantasy queen. I, I really do kind of sometimes have a rather grim, <laughs> grimly realistic point of view on things, you know, and uh, I just thought if I'm not being cast in university theater, I may have a hard time of it in the professional world. And and mind you, in 1972, and for quite a few years after that, there was no Torch Song trilogy, Angels in America, Buyer and Seller, all the different roles that a somewhat effeminate young man can. John Waters was just starting at that point. In movies, and that was kind of a world that you didn't necessarily want to be a part of in Baltimore. Those early, early movies of his, yeah. But but then, you know, fortunately, being from New York City, I would come home for vacation from Chicago, and I I started seeing more experimental theater, and particularly I saw Charles Ludlam, who was just kind of a genius actor, playwright, director, impresario, and had his own theater company. The ridiculous theatrical company, and and he started, I guess, in the mid to late '60s da- downtown, you know, and, and he was just extraordinary. And and I, when I saw him, it was a bit of a tidal wave rushing over me, because all his aesthetic seemed so close to all the things that interested me in classic film and uh, opera and nineteenth-century theater. And, you know, and and there he was having male members in his company playing female roles at times. People label him as you know, a great drag performer when out of probably 36 plays, he played four drag roles. But, you know, that's what happens to you. But just extraordinary. And, and so when I saw him and, and then other, other, other performance artists who created their own universe, a whole new world of possibilities opened up to me that I didn't have to try or dream of, of fitting in of being cast in a play. And I, I always wrote, I, I'm a little surprised that it took me all the way to the age of 19 <laughs> to to think of, well, I could write parts for myself because I was writing full-length plays at 12. You were writing full-length plays at 12. At what point did you, were you seeing plays at all when you were a little oh, yes. bit? Oh, yes. I'm from New York City. You know, I was raised, I was adopted by my aunt, my mother's older sister. My mother died when I was seven, and my father was more fun than responsible. And even before, you know, Aunt Lillian had me live with her, kind of like Auntie Mame, you know, uh, in Manhattan, I was always going to, she was taking me to Broadway shows since I was nine. What was your first show? First show was a, a musical called Tavarich, starring Vivian Lee sure. in her only musical role. And I was a very sophisticated nine-year-old, so I had seen Gone with the Wind and worshipped Vivian Lee. And I remember 
so much of the performance and her costumes and her entrance and yeah so so we saw many many shows and i wonder if perhaps that even i don't know led to what i called my pragmatic view of things being exposed to theater but you know my family wasn't in the theater my father's great dream was to be an opera singer and he had a very lovely big baritone voice but didn't work out. He had a record store in Yonkers, but he always did community theater and summer stock. So I mean, I was kind of around the perfume of the theater. My first show was a musical, Jessie Rides Again with Andy Griffith. Oh, and Dolores Gray. Yeah, she was fabulous. Charles Bush, as you were growing up, you saw all this and you figured, hey, I can write play true. I don't think I've thought of it that way. I just, I just always, always had a very strong creative life. Just from earliest memory, I was drawing and writing and dreaming. I didn't find it so necessary to um, be in a group of friends. I, I sometimes wonder whether I was not as bullied as some gay children because I was kind of a cool customer who um, who really didn't want to be included. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, people are bullied for numerous reasons, but sometimes I, th I think bullies pick on the needy, you know, and the really the vulnerable. And, uh, and I don't think I, oddly enough, was that. I wasn't lonely in my room. I was fully engaged in creating things. And, and of course, what was ironic was that my, I was so mediocre academically from, from the beginning. It just, I just wasn't interested in school and I think maybe in my entire academic career from kindergarten through college, maybe had four teachers who saw anything of value in me. And, and, and you know, now when I look back and think, my God, here I was you know, writing all these full-length plays and screenplays and all this stuff, and yet no teacher thought I, you know, was that that interesting. I just sat in the back of the classroom. I think they couldn't get past the fact that this, you know, spelling – or the penmanship wasn't quite up to it, and not that they weren't interested in the content. In your work, there is that focus on the acting of the early talkies during the period of pre-code, and you talk about it in an interview. I wouldn't say that that's real. I mean, it really is just Hollywood acting. I mean, I, I mean, I've done really. I mean, Lily Dare, I think, is is really the only actual. Oh no, we did. Um, Shanghai Moon was was based on a, on a, a pre-code film, but but you know I've, I've really done sort of so many different film genres, um, from the '60s beach party movie to you know, the '50s blacklist, those '60s um, Hollywood religiosity, the Divine Sister, really kind of run the spectrum, I guess, <laughs> of uh, of Hollywood movie genres. You know, with my plays, my sort of genre parody plays, I guess you call them. You know, I've never really done a specific, like spoofed a specific movie, like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, write a spoof of Maltese Falcon or something. It's always been kind of more of a genre. And usually it's kind of a, a you know, almost like a, a subgenre is one of my, would be a favorite of mine. Like instead of doing film noir, I did the, uh, as I said, the uh, wartime right. espionage movie, which has elements of noir to it. Yeah, they're always a little, you know, not quite what you would think that would be spoofable. 
did you watch a lot of Channel Nine million dollar movie growing up? Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, for, for your viewers who don't know what that is, in our day, you know, back when we were kids, because we were probably sort of contemporaries, there was a station Channel Nine. They didn't have enough programming, basically, so they would have a movie, million dollar movie, it was on every night, eight o'clock, I believe, eight o'clock, and then, and they'd show the same movie every, you know, every night, and then. Uh, at eight and eleven, but then on the weekends they'd run it on a loop twenty-two times. It would be all Saturday, all day Sunday. And my sister Margaret and I, we watched Yankee Doodle Dandy every single showing <laughs> that whole week. Or Ida Lupino and the Hard Way. For some reason, that movie just obsessed me. Yeah, no, so you really would know it by heart. <laughs> I remember just you know, I think. Uh, Maybe it was my mother. You know, I have so few memories of her because you know she died when I was seven. But suddenly it's coming back to me. What are you doing? What's this power you have over me, Richard? I think she was like, like sort of yelling at my sister and I. Just how many times are you gonna watch that goddamn movie? Obsessively, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with Yankee Doodle Dandy was my father. Uh, always reminded us, of, or James Cagney reminded us of my father. Something about him physically and expressions on his face. So you know that movie was kind of like watching Daddy on. Film. Well, when you realized uh, after college or during college that if you were going to be in a show, you had to write your own show and put it on yourself, you began with skits, is that right? And one of them became uh, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom? Mm. So at Northwestern, senior year, I wrote a, a kind of a long one-act play about a, a, that was very influenced by Charles Ludlam's work, and it was about a, a traveling circus freak show. And so there were probably maybe uh, seven characters in it, but the, the central figures were a pair of Siamese twin showgirls, Hester and Esther. And so I wrote those parts for my best friend and I, and, and we found a way of putting the play on on campus. And I acted in it, wrote it, directed it, swept the stage. And it was a wonderful feeling. We did it twice. And well, actually, what was kind of amusing was just that uh, we were just going to do it like, in a room at the dorm, you know, downstairs. But a friend of mine ran the uh, Midnight Madness movie series at, in the student union where they would show John Waters films or Warhol films. And they lost the rights one weekend to a film. And so my, this friend of mine, Scott Blakeman, said, well, hey, well, we, I could give you the rental fee so you'd have a little budget and you'd do the show at, at, you know, in the student union auditorium. So it suddenly became a bigger deal. Well, a few days before the show, the campus newspaper came to interview me. And this young man hadn't quite got it together yet. So he, he didn't ask me a single question. He was a journalism major. He had a long way to go. So I just started like, like I'm doing right now, just blah, 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 going on. And, and uh, I was just trying to sell the show. And then day of the show, on the front page of the Daily Northwestern paper, you know, President Ford's son's visit was relegated to inside. It was a big picture of my friend Ed and I in drag and said, uh, degeneracy reigns at midnight madness. <laughs> and always, I, I was terrified that we were going to just get, you know, every goon in town. But we sold out and the audience loved it. And it was very exciting. You know, I, I thought, oh, this feels good. This is maybe really who I am. And and I've been doing it ever since. Vampire lesbians? Of course, many years later. I had a whole career as a solo performer, traveling around the country, doing these 
very, um, I was not in drag. I was just dressed, you know, black pants and a shirt. They were rather complicated, almost like screenplays that I played all the, all the characters, male and female, and I didn't change costume at all. One of the first feelings of success I had with that was in San Francisco. I used to perform at Valencia Rose Cabaret, you know, and that was a magical place. In a way, it was kind of the first sense of success. It was just a wonderful place. So I, I'm very sentimental about San Francisco because of all the months that I spent there in the early 80s and saw the fast, fascinating people I got to meet and, and know, Armistead Maupin and Danny Nicoletta, Cleve Jones, everybody. I got to meet everybody. And it was thrilling just before AIDS hit. Magical, magical. First night in San Francisco, I was taken to a naked hot tub party that turned into a rather polite orgy. I mean, I thought, oh, it's heaven. <laughs> Everything I dreamed of. I remember, you know, I had dreamed of coming to San Francisco. You know, and I'd seen um, that wonderful documentary, Word is Out. You know, and I'd read all about Harvey Milk and everything, and he'd already been assassinated. So when I got to San Francisco, and I'd read, oh, well, and I'd, been, I'd read the first three Tales of the Cities, right. which, yeah. of course, it totally just made me, along with everybody else, this dream of going to San Francisco. It wasn't easy to figure out a way, because I was so unknown, to get this booking at Valencia Rose. And I basically had to somehow pull a fast one over on Donald and Ron Lanza and them over there that I was sort of famous. Even if they'd never heard of me, I was sort of famous. And I somehow fooled them all. And then magically, the press, you know, in San Francisco really kind of embraced me. And uh, well, I had, I had a very good friend, Edward Guthman, wonderful journalist. And he had been following my career and interviewing pieces in The Advocate about me. And he was San Francisco-based. And the Chronicle covered me and, and all the gay press. It was just thrilling. In New York, you know, I canceled shows more often than I played them because I had no audience. But in San Francisco, they came to see me. And vampire lesbian? Oh, so, yes. Yeah. I had this career for about eight years or more as a solo performer. I was still, however, you know, I couldn't earn a living when I wasn't a great star in San Francisco or Washington, D.C. or all the various cities I went to, I had to, you know, earn a living, fill it in. I draw well. So, you know, I was a portrait artist and office temp and all sorts of things. And so anyway, during that period, this is 1984 now, a friend of mine, this very exotic Pakistani performance artist, Bina Sharif, who I'd met when I was working at the Renaissance Fair, as a portrait artist. She was a very exotic, fascinating woman. And she invited me to see her do her show way down in the East Village in Alphabet City, which it was called. And in 1984, it was a very scary neighborhood, but there were little pockets of, you know, dance clubs or an art gallery here and there. Madonna and Keith Haring came out of that world. So I saw her at this after-hours bar, art gallery space called the Limbo Lounge. And Oh, I just couldn't believe it was a tiny little storefront. Well, Bino is fabulous, but the whole atmosphere, the whole room was sort of an art installation, bar, no stage. It was so cool. And the, it was goth and punk and gay and straight. And just, it, it was so exotic. And immediately I thought, I have to perform here. And I found the young man who owned the place, Michael Limbo. And, you know, he. It was so loose. He just looked in the calendar and said, here, I'll give you the weekend. And a month from now, he didn't know who I was. You know, I wasn't sure I knew who I was. 
anyway, I had the booking and I knew I didn't want to do my act. I wanted to do something very decadent. And I guess I had seen Interview with the Vampire, read it, read the book. And so I thought, oh, I'll write a little play and I'll be a very glamorous vampire actress, ageless vampire actress. And I'll do it in drag. So I wrote it very quickly. It was, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a skit because it was more like a half hour long, something like that. But I wrote it very, very quickly, just as something to do, just we needed lines to say. And I called up friends of mine, who I'd, none, of them, none of whom knew each other, but all were basically deemed unemployable in theater. And, and I said, would you just do this little you know, show with me for a weekend, two nights in this strange place? And they said, okay. And, and we just threw it together for $35 and just had a ball. And somehow we had a theater company and we just kept doing more shows there. And every three weeks, I'd write us a different show that we could do, you know, every three weeks. And we got so quickly a big following. I mean, amazingly how fast with no publicity at all. And particularly when we did Vampire Lesbians of Sodom with that crazy title, they were lined up down the block and we were squeezing so many people in this tiny space. And it was really a phenomenon for, for us. And it really was a very quick period. You know, I've milked this so much, my time in the East Village, but it really was less than a year between the first time we did that and then ultimately decided to take this one play, Vampire Lesbians, and move it commercially to off-Broadway to a real theater. And we had to raise the astronomical amount of money of $55,000. And that wasn't so easy, but we did. And, and we opened at the Provincetown Playhouse on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village and uh, got a rave review in the New York Times. And, and it ran five years. We all played in it for about two years and replaced everybody. And then we did other shows, including Red Scare on Sunset. And, you know, and from that moment, from that opening night of Vampire Lesbians in 1985, um, I was able to you know, earn my living as an actor-writer, which was the dream. Die, Mommy, Die became a film. Making Die, Mommy, Die really was 21 days of my life that were maybe the most creatively, emotionally, physically engaged really of my life. I just, you know, so often we, we find, you know, it's only in retrospect we think, oh, God, I was so happy then. And I, but I knew it. At the moment, I was just... Every single day, it was such a dream come true to star in my, you know in my own movie and and to play all these scenes with these you know wonderful actors and oh just every day there was some new marvelous challenge to to do you know and then Mark and I were so in sync and and everybody on the film you know the the DP uh, Kelly Evans the editor everyone involved was so excited to be there and working so well there was no never any discord it's you know, an odd little cult film that is loved by a coterie of people and, and unknown to the multitudes but it's something i'm very proud of your career took off you then came allergist wife which put you into the mainstream big time and for the past few years you've been mostly doing plays in manhattan what's been going on yeah, I mean, I've written a lot of plays over the past years. You know, I had a, kind of a pretty big hit uh, in New York with a play called The Divine Sister that ran about a year. I'd done plays, and, and then I've had this other sort of strange career for the past six years as, as a cabaret performer, as a singer in many ways. And that was something that I kind of stumbled into. 
and I've just enjoyed it so. And I've had this wonderful collaboration with my musical director, accompanist, arranger, Tom Judson. And we've traveled around to about 30 cities and four countries. And it's something I just didn't expect. I've learned so much about music and, and singing, and I've loved being able to relate to an uh, audience in such a direct such a direct way because you really are yourself. You know, and the best, I, th I find, cabaret performers are when they have a persona that's 99.9% .9 who they really are. Right. You know, and you dial it up a bit because, you know, you're in performance, but really to be as honest as possible. And I've enjoyed sharing my stories. In my act, it's certainly at least 30% talking and, and then just, you know, singing. And I've really learned so much about music. I'm really singing now. Because at first I, I thought, okay, well, what I have to offer as cabaret performer is my gifts as a storyteller and an actor. And so I'll just kind of talk, sing these songs, a la Elaine Stritch kind of. But then, you know, the more you do something, the more confidence you get, the more confidence you get, the better you sound. And then I, a year or so ago, I took the radical move and thought maybe I should take some singing lessons. <laughs> might help us all, you know. And it works. Isn't that strange? It works. And I've had to learn. It seems like such an obvious lesson, but I've had to learn to trust the music as well as the lyrics and that the, the composer, his melody is can be as articulate and expressive as lyrics, you know, but I come to it as, as a writer. So naturally I think of lyrics first. It's, it's been really great. And we, we just keep going all over the place. I just got booked in Kalamazoo. <laughs> so yeah, there's endless places, you know, um, fine old theater town, Kalamazoo. I actually hear there's a lot of theater going on in Kalamazoo. Political questions. Now I know your work mostly is not, political except in a subtextual kind of way. Right, right. But I wonder with the, maybe things will go downhill quickly, we never know, but with the general acceptance of gay marriage and gay life in the mainstream, what happens to the gay culture of drag, which was born in the closet in a way? Well, certainly not in the closet now. No. I mean, you know, Ru RuPaul's Drag Race has changed the whole notion of, of drag. I mean, it's, um, I, and I, I think it's great. You're not going to get me to be one of those, you know, old timers. Oh, back in my day, it was wonderful. And these people today, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's some fascinating drag performers, but it just shows you just that, that drag is a, a theatrical conceit or concept that embraces an endless variety of of style and context and every, everything. So, yeah, what I do is very different from this one and who's very different from that and, and the whole history of, of drag performance and in, in contemporary show business. Uh, but, yeah, it's not such a underground, just gay entertainment anymore. Some people have said that the old worship of the diva the Judy Garland, the Marilyn Monroe, is kind of fading because that culture no longer needs to, to separate people. I mean, it's just a theory. Maybe, maybe. It's difficult because as far as movies go, we don't live in a flamboyant age, you know. Um, so the actresses, I just don't really think that drag performers are going to be doing Jennifer 
Lawrence and Jessica Chastain, you know, I mean, they don't have big personas. But to be fair to them, just the sheer technology of film, of high def, of film technology of since the 60s, you know, generally speaking, that kind of woman can't exist. The great pantheon of female stars were given to us in, in silvery black and white imagery and images that were honed and, and protected by studio publicists. It started changing in the 50s. In fact, you know, Shirley MacLaine in the 50s would not have been a major star necessarily in the 40s, you know, or the 30s. You know, it just all all changes. So so where we are today, it's just you can't go backwards. In fact, a, a, a very flamboyant woman actress would be would be almost criticized for being, you know, um, drag queenie or this or that, you know. Um, but, you know, we do have very bigger than life pop stars, I guess, like a Lady Gaga or people like that. So, you know, and, and um, they certainly have their very intense gay followings. And I, you know, I don't really go to places where, um, where I would see people lip syncing to contemporary performers, but I would imagine that they're doing Kylie Minogue and, and, you know, Beyonce has big gay following. And, and I think there are a lot of black drag queens who are doing Beyonce. So it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's different. It's not necessarily act actors, but then, you know, on the, on the other hand too, I wouldn't discount the old imagery so completely. It sort of depends who, you know, I mean, I, I see on Facebook, somebody said, write, Oh, I just met a young gay boy who, who's never heard of Lucille Ball. You know, and everybody's telling, oh, oh, that's so horrible. Oh, it's the end of the world. I know a 25-year-old who knows more about uh, Tallulah Bankhead than I do. I mean, you know, who are you talking to? The young people I know are very interested in the past. But that was always kind of, I think, the exception to the rule. When I was in my 20s, my contemporaries were really rich in Donna Summer and the disco divas. I thought it was more of a minority who was interested in stars of the, the 40s. And even today, you've got people like when Jessica Lang did her. People were very interested in Joan and Betty. Yeah. People need to be exposed to stuff. But, you know, in the 70s, when I was in my 20s, Bette Midler's rendition of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy made me want to know more about the Andrews Sisters. So I went out and got an Andrews Sisters record, became a big fan. When I saw Diana Ross do Lady Sings the Blues, made me want to know more about the real Billie Holiday. Got a Billie Holiday record, became a big fan. So, you know, th those things happen. I'm I, sure that those who saw Feud, who did not know necessarily that much about Crawford and Betty Davis, started watching their movies on TCM or, or online, f finding them. It's great. They learned about what have happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. One thing leads you to another, if, if you have any curiosity. And, you know, I have a 31-year-old, very heterosexual nephew. He lives in New York City, and I was just an awfully, awful negligent uncle when he was about six years old, and I figured he was hopelessly straight. I kind of lost interest. But we've kind of really found each other in the last year or two. And um, when he's listening to my sister, his mother and I talk, and he's the film references just keep uh, spinning out. I notice him now writing them down on his phone. And then he starts watching and he saw, he watched baby Jane. And then that led him to want to see Mildred Pierce, which led him to see the letter. And it's been wonderful sharing these movies with him. Charles Bush, 
What is your next play? Uh, Lily Dare closed. Yes. Well, well, the confession of Lily Dare is sort of my new play. You know, we we just did it for a handful of performances, just for the fun of it. But now we're going to do a full production at um, Primary Stages Theater in December of 2019, which just seems so far away, but I guess it goes by quickly. So that's sort of the next play of mine. And now I got some movie projects I'm hoping get done, including The Tale of the Alger's Wife, but you never know if it's going to happen or not. But, you know, showbiz is all about hoping and dreaming, and then I'm always traveling about. When is Kalamazoo? November sometime. Today, I was interested in Australia. So maybe I'll find myself in Australia. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a lovely um lovely new chapter. I'm always up to something and you know I you know we, like everybody I go through periods of um oh discouragement or ruminating over choices that you know, should I have done that or shouldn't I have done that was matter what's the point of it all. But I'm very resilient and eventually there's always some new new idea that intrigues me. I, I, I'm blessed with with this um, creative imagination, which has been my really my great love of my life. There's always something that comes out of this brain of mine that I want to want to fiddle with. Red Scare on Sunset plays at New Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, September 21st through October 21st. It's a San Francisco premiere. For more information, you can go to ntctsf.org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 